Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand as a young girl in Detroit that made an impact on you? I had a, a, a Fiero, which was, you know, built um, at the time at American Motors. And uh, it was just like a super fun, peppy, great, great yeah. vehicle. And a stick shift, by the way. And I was super hot in my red Fiero. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Deborah Wall, the global marketing officer of General Motors, the iconic 113-year-old company with about $120 billion in revenue, and about 165,000 employees. GM's key brands include, of course, Cadillac, Chevrolet, GMC, Buick, and OnStar. Deborah is perhaps the most experienced CMO I've had on the show. She has been in six CMO roles with Lexus, Chrysler, Pulte Group, McDonald's, Cadillac, and now GM. Deb was born and raised in Detroit and returned to her hometown to lead global marketing for GM. In this conversation with Deb, we get into creativity, we get into the role of leadership, mentorship, and how to build marketing into an important factor in a category that hasn't always valued marketing. This is my conversation with Deb Wall. Welcome, Deb, to the CMO Podcast. You know, you are the second GM leader that I've had on the podcast. I interviewed Melissa Grady, of course, the CMO of Cadillac this past summer, and I asked her who her best boss ever was. And you were one of two people she wow. cited. Wow. That's and awesome. I love that. Yeah. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. And I said, why? And she rattled off a bunch of things, but she said inspiring and fun were two of the attributes. So I want to ask you, as we're recording early on a Friday morning, are you feeling inspired and fun today? You know what? I am. It's well, first of all, I love Fridays <laughs> still after all Me these too. years. And um, it's been such an incredible year for growth and exploring new ways of teamwork and leadership and all that. So, yeah, I, I have been incredibly inspired. You know, you have been a CMO six times, I've only been a CMO once. And I think I met you just before your first CMO type role at Lexus many years ago. I came out and visited you when I was at P&G in the early days of being a CMO there. And I met with you and Jim Farley to do some benchmarking about consumer centricity, about 
communication, about the digital world. Uh, and, and so I want to ask you, he's, you've done very well. You're now CMO of General Motors. He's CEO of Ford. Are you still in touch with him? Do you still chat with him now and then? Oh, um, every now and then we do a little communication, less and less these days. But, you know, he's one of the people that I continue to admire greatly. He's a um, terrific person, uh, very special. And obviously, we're both doing our best to change the world. Yeah. So I want to open our chat with, uh, I, I do a lot of research for these interviews. So I, I love to uh, get to know my guests really well before we talk. And I, and I know you fairly well before this discussion. But I'm going to open with an amazing trivia question. Oh, no. The founder of the college that you graduated from, Wellesley, which is outside Boston, of course, and the founder of GM have the same last name. And the founder of GM was born in Boston. So are they related? You know, I hate to say that. I have no idea, but I will be calling our research lab to go find out immediately. <laughs> I'm curious. It, you know, they they just might be, and I, I couldn't find if they're related either. So I, yeah. I'm not surprised you don't know that because I could not find it on the internet. But I think it's it's really interesting. Well, we have a whole um, group that does all of our legacy work, you know, as many companies do, um, and they're incredible. So that will be my first call after this one. I'll report back to you. Excellent. All right. Now we're going to get back to your college days later, okay. but I want to go back even earlier. You're a native Detroiter, and you're now back in Detroit in one of the city's biggest roles. So did you have any desire or inkling as a kid growing up, you might end up in the automotive business? No. <laughs> the answer is no. So it's funny what life throws at you. And in fact, you know, as I was going through high school and school, my desire was to um, leave Michigan and go experience the world to the fullest extent that I could. Uh, and so I traveled all over the world. I went, you know, did lots of jobs internationally. But what was amazing to me is that, you know, your roots pull you back. And your roots are such a formative part of, you know, the people that you become uh, that for me, I, I should have predicted it, but it was really inevitable that I ended up here, ended up in the automotive world. Um, and it's been a long, long, such an amazing journey that um, I've been able to experience. How, what, do you, what do you love most about being back in Detroit? Um, you know, when I grew up here, it, it's, a, it's a place that's used to a lot of challenges. There was always cycles and ups and downs. And my dad was in the automotive business and he had great years and we had unbelievably hard years. And you had this grittiness of experience and tenacity that I think um, exemplifies the people that are here in the Detroit area and what we do. Um, but along with that, there was the most fun that I've ever had with a group of people. Like despite every challenge, the approach was, all right, let's find a way to party. Let's go do something. Let's, you know, let's find the good out of it and, and connect with each other and do that. Um, and I think that has, you know, been the mainstay that formed my approach to life. Um, I think why I always love to take on huge challenges. Everyone else is like, are you crazy? Like, what are you thinking? Um, and for me, that was, you know, part of what we do and how we do it. So, you know, it was a long journey and I went all over the world. I spent many years in California. I worked for many different companies. And at this stage, I sort of took a step back and said, where do I really want to be? And I could go anywhere in the world. Where do I want to be? And it was 
back to the roots in Detroit, try to add value and contribute here. Um, it's gone through so much, this whole area, so many ups and downs. So um, that's what I made my priority. And it's been unbelievably fulfilling. So your dad was in the automotive business. Was he with one of the big companies or a supplier or an agency or a dealer? He was first uh, the plant manager at one of the Chrysler plants, did the night shift, then moved on, wow. started his own company, which was, you know, in the parts supply business, had a stamping plant. He did press repair. Um, that business, uh, as things advanced, they used to take these enormous presses out of the factories to repair them. And then they, you know, transport them back in. He did that. And of course, then the world changed because process became better and you didn't have to take the presses out, stamping plant. Um, and then he became an entrepreneur in many other ways. So he had all kinds of experiences and he was always trying something new and coming up with a new idea and going for it. And some worked and a lot didn't. And, you know, so really learned from all that experience. But I think being an entrepreneur for him, which I saw those ups and downs, is probably why I chose big company work. <laughs> right, right. Super. Well, you have a bit of that entrepreneurial spirit yourself, Deb. <laughs> a little bit. Hey, now, when I visit you post-COVID in Detroit, you know, my son and daughter-in-law live in Detroit. They just bought a house in North Corktown. So when I come up to visit them, we have to get together. And what would you do with me to show me a bit of Detroit if I came to visit you after COVID? Or when so I come to visit you after COVID? Well, one of my favorite things about the city and the area, which most people don't know, is the incredible architectural history and design history here. So I would concoct it and um, curate a tour around that because it's my favorite. There are beautiful buildings in Detroit. Obviously, there's a lot of rejuvenation going on, which um, just brings all that beauty to the fore. And then I would spend a lot of time showing you the origins of mid-century modern design which were actually started at um, Cranbrook, um, which is an educational community. Um, Saarinen, who is an amazing architect, was the director. He also did the Warren Tech Center. And there's an incredible history. In fact, the, the core of mid-century modern design actually emanated right here in this area where I live now. And I live in a mid-century modern house right now too, uh, which makes me so happy every day. So uh, I would show you all that because I think it helps you understand uh, the history of the city and what we've all been trying to do and the ups and downs that cities can take and then how you actually rejuvenate and, and bring back a city, which many of us are really focused on. So my wife gave me for a birthday a womb chair. So that has its roots in Detroit, I guess, yes, right? Yes, exactly. It's in the fact, most comfortable chair I've ever sat in. It's on my next purchase list. I absolutely love that. Yep. It's, um, I have a lot of Knoll furniture. I have a Mies van der Rohe Barcelona couch. Um, and, you know, it's funny because... Uh, at one point, my mother will say, that's all the furniture we had when I was, you know, first married and we got <laughs> right. rid of all that. I'm like, it's beautiful, yeah. stunning design that lasts. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website. And then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. 
Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. We're going to go back to your college days. You left Detroit and you went to an all-women's school in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and then eventually University of Pennsylvania, where you got two master's degrees. And shortly thereafter, you landed in the car and truck business, where you've spent the majority of your career, not all of it, but the majority. Now, you said early you didn't think you'd be go in the automotive business growing up. Of course, kids don't know what's in store for them growing up. I'm just reading the worst question you can ask a kid when they're young is, what do you want to do for a living? That's like <laughs> one of the worst questions. But was this serendipity that you just ended in this business versus CPG or technology or fashion? Or was it sort of a plan that evolved as you got older and a bit more mature? Well, I think the interesting thing, so my first job out of MBA was to work for W.L. Gore in Paris, France. And that was amazing. I was actually starting up my own business that we were launching across Europe. I was responsible for the French market. It was completely entrepreneurial, you know, had to do it. It was a, a product for people who had allergies to dust mites made out of Gore-Tex fabric. Um, and it was an amazing experience. But after three or four years there, we really weren't, it wasn't working. It wasn't um, profitable enough. And I was, I had to pay my student loans. I was out of money completely. <laughs> and, you know, because I had gone there not as an expat, just, you know, as a local. Yeah. Um, it was the most amazing experience of my life, gave me a ton of confidence, but, you know, I had to come back. So, of course, as I'm thinking about how do I come back to the States? What job do I get? My father was like, I'm going to connect you with someone in the auto business that I know. And I'm thinking, no, I said I would never do that, never do that. And I started interviewing all over the place. And uh, I had, I remember this in the same week, I had an interview at Kraft and I went to Kraft in Chicago and interviewed and we talked about extensions to cheese products and everything that we could do. And then from there, I flew to Detroit. And when I landed in Detroit, the recruiting team picked me up. They took me to join some other people who were being recruited there straight to the test track. And we went out and went screaming around the test track in cars to test drive, you know, some of the new vehicles that they had. And it was at that moment that I was hooked. I was like, I don't know what I was thinking before. This is so exciting. There's so much energy and passion. And I want to do something that everyone really wants. And so that's how I ended up in the car business. That's a great rec recruiting tool, taking kids to the track. You know, you can't do that when you join P&G, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. You do a home visit, right, to see how people are shampooing and yeah. doing the laundry. We probably can't even do that anymore now with the tracks because we have so many safety, you know, protocols. But at that time, many moons ago, um, it was great. And it convinced me, and I've, you know, loved it ever since. Do you remember what you drove way back then on that test track? I think we were in Mustangs. It was yeah, great. Of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you worked at WL Gore. That's that company was very famous for its culture. So what what was it about that place that was special? I mean, they had two philosophies, basically, um, make money and have fun. So the fun part. And then they had something do whatever you want, just don't sink the boat. Don't put a hole in the boat. So anyone who came up with an idea could advance it and could work with this multifaceted product, the PTFE, which was what the core product that Gore makes. 
And it was amazing. I worked with the guy who invented Glide, the um, oh, you know, yeah. the, the dental floss. And then we went over and found this great use that if you cover your mattresses and bed coverings with PTFE, it allows the mattress to breathe, but protects you and saves people's lives who have allergies to dust mites. And it was, you know, it was incredible. So it was very entrepreneurial, really not significant structure, but you just really could go and push and try everything. And I think at a, the beginning of a career, that is so valuable because it gives you that confidence to just make decisions and try something and go somewhere. Um, so it was a really incredible company, um, incredible structure. It was great culture to work at. Were you reporting to a French boss? I was, yes. In fact, I was, you know, one of the few Americans there. So that was interesting. And I appreciated that, you know, I had gone to the Lauder Institute and really brushed up. My French was pretty good, but it wasn't good, as good as it needed to be to work full time in French all the time. But I got there pretty quickly and they took a chance on me. And I really appreciate that. So the first boss is an important uh, step in one's career. What did you learn from your first boss? Her name was Amory. And she was just a woman full of passion, um, who engaged with everyone, uh, gave really terrific advice, never sort of became too overbearing, but just really tried to help. But she was always on top of everything. She knew her subject. She was energetic. She was really working hard with passion to advance the products. and. Um, I really appreciated that. And I appreciated the patience that she had with me mm-hmm. as, you know, the new marketer with my MBA coming in who, you know, in a new country, a new language, I really didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. And she was very patient with that. That sounds great. Now let's fast forward to today. Yeah. You've been a CMO. You've been in a CMO role at Lexus, Chrysler, Pulte Group, the home building company, McDonald's, Cadillac, and now GM. So I want to ask you a question. How are you a different CMO leader now than when you were when you were starting your CMO journey with the likes of Lexus and Chrysler? It's a great question. And um, one thing that I do love about life and career work is we constantly evolve and we have to be very introspective um, and open. Um, I think as I was coming up young and I was in a very male dominated industry, I was pushing all the time and arguing and feeling like I had to stand up for my ideas or opinions and really push hard. And I remember at one time someone said to me, um, does everything with you have to be an argument? And do you really have to win everything? <laughs> and I said, wow. Yeah. Uh, and that was a good boss, you know? Yeah. He was, whoever, whoever had that discussion with Robert, you, those are not easy discussions. Right. And, you know, that sort of made me do the, oh my God. That is what I'm all about. And I'm, you know, I alienate people, even though I got a lot done, but it wasn't always in the best way. So um, as I've grown up in in my career, uh, it's been that balance. And I think what's amazing at this role as a global CMO, I think it's the toughest CMO role, as you know, because Mm -hmm. you don't have direct business responsibility, but yet you are responsible for driving growth and, and driving results. Um, but you're not in the day-to-day with all the numbers and, and everything. And I never thought in my career that I wanted to be in this role, honestly, because it's harder. Um, and when I came into this role, uh, I had some good mentoring. He said, you know, now is the time where you have to be the sun. 
stop being the salt and finding out what's wrong with everyone, but really understand how do you inspire greatness in performance? How do you inspire innovation and um, taking risks so that you can help drive the growth to a better place? So that's um, really what I've been focused on in, in this stage of my career. It is about fully uh, working to help everyone, to help everyone's skill sets grow. And I have a little book from my mentor he wrote called Be the Sun, Not the Salt, um, where he talks about this heliotropic uh, way of leadership that, you know, you can get a lot more and help a lot more people and get a lot more growth for a company when you're shining the positive light on and helping people grow instead of saying, up. Oh, that's a bad idea. I see that number doesn't work. And I spent many years in cultures like that with bosses like that. Um, and I hated it. And, you know, you always felt stress and tension and never good enough. And I think that, especially what we're learning in all of this, that people feel and perform the best when they're confident, when they feel safe, when they feel they're in an environment that they can bring ideas up and that there's a, you know, someone that will listen and help. Uh, and so that's been my whole trajectory from being that like, ah, to, you know, really trying to um, understand and, and work with everyone in a different way. Find the sun. Who was the mentor that you, uh, that you got this saying from and this philosophy? Yeah, his name is Dr. Harry Cohen. And um, he mentored me through all my career modes. Um, he has been just wonderful and has had a huge impact on everyone. I met him first at Ford because he was working as an advisor, consultant, coach at Ford. And you've maintained that relationship to, until today. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's very unusual. Yeah. And it's, you know, you got to have people in your life who are truth tellers. You know, he just no holds barred. He'll be like, you did what? Like, why did you say that you're that is not right and just really comes at you. Because as you know, when you grow into other leadership positions, um, sometimes it's hard to hear the truth and the candidness. And one, it's incumbent upon us, I think, to create that environment where you can, people mm -hmm. feel comfortable, but a lot of people don't necessarily always tell you bluntly. So it's really valuable to me to, I have a whole group of people who tell me exactly what they think all the time. <laughs> How often do you talk to Harry these days? Less than you did earlier or more? Yeah, well, typically um, we'll get together, uh, you know, now it's been a more challenging three or four times a year and mm -hmm. then, you know, touch base every couple of months. And I'm just a big fan of his philosophy. And I really think it's the right philosophy of leadership for the time. Yeah. We're going to get to more of your role at GM and how you're finding the sun and bringing out the creativity you are. But I want to ask you before we get there, of the roles you've had as a CMO, what's been the most challenging role for you and, and why and how did you get through it? Uh, for me, uh, no question, the most challenging role was the um, CMO of McDonald's. Uh, you know, when I joined, it was um, in, a, in a place where there was a clear need for a turnaround. So a lot of strategic discussions. Um, it's a very, very complex organization, and I give huge props to anyone who's working in it. Um, you know, there's a as a CMO, you actually can't make any of your own decisions because you have a board of franchisees who votes, and it's a large group over sixty members who vote on everything that you can do. So, it's a really it taught me actually a lot about how do you move a large group to do extraordinary things, and I think we did have to do it at that time. Um, it taught me the benefits of even if you have a leadership vision, uh, how you have to be in the trenches. 
and with people and negotiating with people and talking with people and being part of convincing um, significant movement. And we were able to do that um, by launching All Day Breakfast, which is a big thing that clearly consumers wanted, but had a lot of operational challenges and, you know, um, about how we got that all done, how we moved a whole system forward on that. Um, but it was hard every single day. It was, you know, to really think about how do you transform? What can you do to add more value? Um, every day we looked at numbers on a daily basis, of course. And, you know, it, it was very, very demanding, very demanding. What are you most proud of from your time there? Uh, I think most proud of is the fact that we were able to jumpstart the turnaround with All Day Breakfast and then with many of the other things that we put in place. Uh, we really worked with the franchisees. I still have great relationships with them. I talk to them, you know, at least a whole handful of them several times a year still and formed really deep relationships of respect and, and mutual admiration for all parts of the business. And I think we really got a handle on transforming how we did marketing and starting that and uh, the trajectory for McDonald's. It went when I got there, almost anything we did was attacked viciously. Um, even when we launched a new Happy Meal character, it, you know, and I think McDonald's is in a really, really good place and has shown that it's a legacy company that has can transform. It's brought digital and uh, different channels into the whole experience, and it's really do doing a great job. Deb, I, I want to throw a question up that a lot of our listeners who work in companies are dealing with, and that is the the role and impact of marketing in a firm. And it's one of the most frequently asked questions I get with people who are working in an industry where marketing and brand building is not seen as central and a driver to the business and a seat at the table, however you want to say that. You have worked in industries, automotive, for a lot of your career, which where marketing is not often in the center and has not been historically. I think that is changing. So I would like you, you will have some interesting advice here to people who are working in companies right now where they feel like marketing is not respected, seen as the driver of the business, seen as an equal peer with finance and supply chain and HR. So what's your advice to those listeners who want to elevate the importance and impact of marketing in their companies? Yeah, uh, it's a critical question and certainly one that I've um, worked at my entire career. Uh, and I think many of us have what I found, um, especially in a company like General Motors, which is very engineering focused. I mean, it is very much about that and, and technology focused right now is, uh, the first thing I did with the encouragement of my boss was to start finding out all the stories that existed in the company. Because what I found is that there were so many incredible areas of transformation and work and innovation that were going on, but that story wasn't being told anywhere because we, you know, there was a perspective that, you know, we're going to talk about product features and talk about that. And as we uh, developed that approach and looked at the fact that we are a legacy company, which is in the midst of the greatest level of transformation we've ever had. We really solidified our purpose, which is in our vision, which was a world of zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. First company I've been in, actually, which understood the consequences of some of its actions and growth through the decades. 
um, which I thought was incredibly brave and courageous of Mary Barra, the CEO, to put a stake in the ground that we're going to fix this as a company. And um, then what we said is if people understand the story, it's incredible what will happen in terms of growth and transformation investment. And we started to unleash that uh, and the results of that, those efforts uh, this year. And what we've seen with the narrative that we brought together at CES, which really made uh, all of this transformation consumable by everyone, including our investors, policymakers, consumers, et cetera, that idea that is the core to marketing of building a growth narrative and being able to then communicate it uh, was a major uh, catalyst for actually a significant rise in our company value, um, a whole new look at who we are as a company, and a new confidence from both our core stakeholders and consumers. So uh, if anyone's looking at the power that marketing strategy, marketing narrative, and then the technology, of course, behind it, how we're communicating with customers on a regular basis needs to do, I think they really need to understand that core element. And marketing is the only group that can really drive that along, of course, with the great partnership with communications. Um, but it needs both elements to drive it together and to bring it to the fore. So um, I think we have uh, been able to demonstrate significant uh, growth from that, significant value to the company, and we need to do more of it. And then, uh, I, you know, when we did the Super Bowl spot, which um, I actually took a page out of your book when, you know, you had said many years ago in that meeting that we had at Toyota, I uh, talked about unleashing the creativity of all the groups and the human connection between all the products. And so we took that page out of your book, frankly. So I say hats off to you. And of course, I love the ad. You fell up. And yeah, and we, we told the story about why electric and what does it mean to America and the fact that everyone's in it together. And it's a, it's a whole effort by everyone that we need to do if we're going to have a future that we can be collectively proud of. And Will Ferrell did that with a madcap, hilarious adventure, but then that communicated just so succinctly what, you know, what the issue is in front of all of us. Um, and, uh, and it was great to see that creativity unleashed because so many people said, wow, gee, I've never seen GM in this way. And I, I didn't understand what they were doing. Whereas inside the company, that's what I see all the time. It's the most fun group of people to work with, unbelievable passion, incredible knowledge and technology and innovation. I mean, we're building battery plants. We've um, transformed how everyone looks at it. Electric vehicles are incredible to drive. And none of that was getting transmitted out. So uh, again, I think that's the power of what we do, we have to have really strong strategies and understand that, but then to bring it together and unleash that so that everyone responds. And believe me, like your, our consumers respond, investors respond to that, policymakers, it, you really actually get um, a huge jump out of all of your core audiences. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com.
There was a lot in what you just said, Deb, and I want to sort of click a little bit deeper on two concepts in what you just said. And the one of them is creativity, which we'll get to in a minute. But the first one is to uh, understand the story, find the stories, develop the narrative. And and your narrative has dramatically changed, and your stock price is at you know very high. I think fifty-two week high, and a lot of people are saying it should go a lot higher. Uh, what? How did you do that? Uh, you know, starting with the zero, 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 which is perhaps one of the best rallying cries I've ever heard. Who doesn't want to work for a company that's trying to do zero emissions, zero crashes, and zero congestion? So tell us a little bit of the, pull the screen back. You know, how did you do that? We're all seeing it now, but the company was not like this a few years back. Yeah, I think, well, one, it was um, a collective effort. And I, I also think that the challenges that we've gone through in the last year have sharpened everyone's resolve about what is absolutely paramount for us to do as a company and where our contributions lie. Some of that came from um, the fact that we jumped in to make ventilators and started manufacturing ventilators in 30 days and, you know, have a new benchmark of how we can solve complex problems. But it really started out with that vision that Mary set out over three years ago now. Um, and then internally, there was relentless transformation going on. We changed how we work. We became more agile. We changed our organization structure. We created new teams to help and focus on this future, which was always really hard because we know that right now the majority of our business is our trucks and SUVs, and that has to transition. So very brave um, within the company. We actually took our Corvette team, which is you know the pinnacle of our engineering and performance, and we transferred them and said, you're working on the EVs now. Um, so you have all the, the best thinking and the best passion, the company going to what we believe is our, is our future and where we need to go. So I think all of that, um, you know, formed, you know, all this is going on, but then we had to do, we did the core hard work. We worked with the team. We looked at what are our strengths. You know, we did the classic brand architecture to say, here's our vision and mission, and these are our pillars, and we're going to start getting focused around that. That helped focus overall what our narrative needs to be. So it was really interesting because in this day and age where we're talking about technology and everything, it's our core skill set that I think enables um, the strategic focus in the company on growth and where we're going. And this, by the way, was not just marketing. It was, I, I give credit to all the different um, parts of the company, including our comms and our investor relations and our um, our uh, engineering team and their strategy. It was everyone coming together. Um, and we just shepherded all that thinking so that we could get to a place and align. And I know for any big company, success comes from alignment over and over again. You can have great thinkers, but if you don't get that overall alignment, um, it's incredible. And then finally, we uh, focused on, uh, you know, the core stakeholder strategy. Again, certainly you have investors and policymakers, but employees were our absolutely core stakeholder. And for this kind of a transformation, you need to get them as excited as anything else. So a large part of the Will Ferrell campaign, which most people haven't seen, is we spent an enormous amount of effort internally with the company. We teased, you know, why, why, why does Will hate Norway inside? Will actually became 
an employee of the company. He had his own, what we call people finder. So he had his own, he was the vice president of Norwegian research <laughs> and, <laughs> and he started engaging and he was awesome with the whole thing. And so, so engaged with it. So he started engaging the week prior with all of our employees and teasing things and challenging them on their knowledge and, and where it was, because, you know, when you have 164,000 employees, it's as important that everyone inside feels um, the stories and the transformation understands really where this path is in the roadmap. So I think it was a lot of those um, core pieces. And then finally to unleash the creativity around it because unleashing the creativity makes everyone, we started talking about, you know, how great we feel on Friday and, um, you know, feeling happy and inspired. And when you unleash the creativity, people start having fun at work. Um, and so as we tackle these enormous challenges, everyone's working from home overnight, you know, we're dealing with uh, systemic racial injustice that we're all trying to solve. But if we're having fun doing it and thinking about it that way, um, it speeds up everything. It actually helps with agility and it helps with the creativity and helps with innovation. So uh, I think the role of marketing is is so needed in this day and age. And the role of doing it well and unleashing from all the technical and performance marketing to the strategy, to the creativity, that's how we really can move companies faster. We talked about when you and I met many years ago when I was at P&G, we talked about creativity and the power of that. I was just asked by Can Lines to do a keynote speech on creativity, which they're releasing. I just recorded it. They're releasing it in early March. And I basically said two things. You know, it's all about how you treat people and it's about the culture you create. And if you, that's the job of leadership. So I want to ask you, what have you learned about unleashing creativity at GM? You've done this throughout your career, but you're in a very, very big job in a very big company now. What have you learned? You've just talked about some of the things you're doing. You're, you, you let people bring fun to work, right? You have a clear vision. But I'd like you to unpack that a bit more for us. What is the journey you and your team have helped lead to unleash this power at GM? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing is we've simplified everything. Um, <laughs> and when you're unleashing creativity, when we did the Super Bowl brief, we um, worked it just to four simple points, like have one idea, be visually arresting, you know, have a compelling story around it. And Again, only say like focus on one thing because everyone tries to do everything and and then it gets too complex and you lose all the impact. So um, we've certainly tried to do that and we're trying to work further at simplifying. And then I, I think um, having people take risks, we often talk in our company that, you know, it's hard to take a risk because if you've taken a risk in the past, you know, it hasn't been well received and something so... I'm spending a lot of my time with my colleagues and peers about how do we let people know it's okay. It's like the only way we get further is if you bring your ideas to the table. And it can't be us as the leadership who's thinking of everything. You actually probably know and have a lot more. So we're spending a lot of time on that. And finally, Mary uh, Barra set an ambition of GM being the most inclusive company in the world. And I think that has a big part of creativity. She and I were having a, a chat um, the other day, and we talked about people perform their best again when they feel safe, when they feel like they're in an environment that respects them, that they have equal opportunity, and where everyone's voice is 
respected and, and needs to be heard. Um, so we're spending an enormous amount of time throughout all of our ranks, making sure that we rethink what in the past has led to us not having that environment. How do we make it that kind of a place? And I know for me, like when I leave my job, that's what I want to say that I did. That's more important to me than anything, that we really helped change this, that we brought inclusivity fully in, and that certainly for the marketing group that we made huge strides because this is something we've talked about for decades and now we have to act on it. And when that happens, like the great example, we asked our agencies to do that. Uh, Leo Burnett for Cadillac hired their first African-American executive creative director, Robert Clifton, and he did the Cadillac Lyric Super Bowl spot, which was great. It was, you know, the story of Edgar Scissorhands and yeah. really, you know, brought in a whole different way the story of some of the technology that we have in our new EVs. Deb, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, could A few pragmatic or practical tips for people who are trying to also change their culture to be more accepting of risk, accepting of failure, inclusive. What are some of the visible things that you and Mary and others are doing to help move that forward? Yeah. Um, so th there's so many pieces of it, but again, and this is where I think the first thing that I always do is reach out to my colleagues um, across the board. And that's why I love being part of ANA and MMA and different groups. But um, I actually had a great conversation with Mark uh, when we started, when all of... With Mark Pritchard? Yes, with Mark Pritchard. Yeah, when the at PNG, yeah. social injustice, um, you know, after the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. So, and he mentioned that, you know, his team was setting up their action plan. And we talked about that, and I brought that back to our team and said, we need an action plan right now. <laughs> and um, it's a great idea. So we set new um, ambitious targets for the diversity. So we want 40% diversity representation, both in marketing and with the agencies. We set out the fact that we need to make sure that we're having more diversity directors, producers, everything in the pipeline of creativity come to the fore. And we set new processes with purchasing and how we do that. Um, we set out new goals about spending, um, which we hadn't done in a while, frankly, because we, you know, had gone as a whole industry looking at total market versus targeting versus other mm -hmm. things. And we set that, that out. Um, and, um, and then we brought, um, everyone in and then we said, you know, the diversity owned businesses and the groups through which we can communicate and engage need strengthening and need new opportunities. So we're developing new groups and giving them an opportunity to grow, like actually providing some of that funding and entrepreneurship. And, you know, we worked with Carlos Watson at Ozzy, who is now doing real talk, real change to help these communications come on. We're doing um, something on a whole radio program so that we can have radio, uh, you know, just really continuing to grow. Um, but when I step back, it was a couple things. Simplicity, again, how do we really just nail it down to what can truly make a difference and impact? Um, second is consistency. So at GM, we have always started every meeting with a safety message because we believe that we should be advancing a safer world for all. We just, that's how we work. And that safety message is now broadened to focus on inclusivity because it goes back to the core. You don't feel safe in an environment psychologically, unless you have complete inclusivity. So we're adding those things practically to every single meeting, and that helps form a culture. 
Um, and then just remaining agile with the challenges. We have to make progress. And we're looking at big things that our technology can help solve. You were, before this job, you were the CMO of Cadillac, and you were in that job, I think, about a year and a half. And you, you must have gotten a call to say, hey, Deb, you know, we want you to stop doing CMO of Cadillac, which you were probably really getting into your groove about then. Yeah. And we want you to come to corporate. And you hadn't had a corporate CMO for about seven years. So tell us what that was like. <laughs> You know, I think, uh, as I said before, my first reaction was like, hmm, um, yeah. because, you know, it's so different being in the business, which is so much fun um, versus being. But, um, you know, I did a lot of reflection and thought, one, as I had done my Cadillac role, I had seen all the potential and possibilities of what was going on in the company. And that story didn't have a champion or an advocate. Uh, and so for me, that was a real opportunity. I also fully believe in the mission um, of the company and what we're trying to do. So, you know, when that call came, uh, you know, I said, I'm in, um, I, you know, I want to help and want to contribute as much as possible. Uh, and it's just been, um, you know, sometimes in life, you've just got to go with where the curveballs take you and have a chance to contribute and make as much a difference as possible. And for my own personal growth, I also thought that this would be a good thing, really changing the style to give back a lot more and help other people grow and, and define that. So all those things came into play. And all I can say is I'm just so grateful. It's been an incredible opportunity. I'm just so grateful that Mary and Mark Royce and Steve Carlisle at the company asked me to do it. And um, we're just getting started. So you, this is an interesting position because you came into a new role, basically, because it hadn't been around for a long time. What did you do? How did you set it up? How did you decide what your scope was, what your core work would be, where you would focus, Yeah. You know, what success would look like for you? Because I've been in a corporate CMO job, and as you said at the beginning, it's not easy. You want, to, you want to be helpful and relevant to the business and make an impact on the culture and company and the people and the customers. So, you know, go back to the, how you set the job up. What do you do? Yeah. And, has, and how has that shifted? Um, I think it's really important how we look at those things because I know that I had observed in my past, um, you know, different people in those corporate roles and what they had done, what I had hated <laughs> and what I loved. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, you know, when they were helping me be better, I really loved it. And uh, when they had respect for my objectives and the growth for my business unit was when I, you know, um, had the best relationship. So that became my core guiding principle. Um, then we set out a mission to be best in world marketers, not just best in the automotive industry, but best in world, because I think you need a, a higher um, goal and aspiration to go to. And then we'd start defining, well, what does that mean exactly? And where do we have gaps? Um, and uh, then my point of view for the whole team, because there's an incredible talent at, at the company. But what I wanted to see, uh, a lot of it was in each of our silos. So one group was amazing at packaging and pricing and, you know, defining the product and setting out that. Another was great at creativity. Another was great at performance marketing. And our my perspective has been, well, watch, everyone should be at peak performance at all of those things. So if we start sharing, 
and aligning on those things. No need to reinvent the wheel. If someone's doing this great, learn from them. So we've spent a lot of time on, on bringing those stories together and highlighting the people who are doing them and, and trying to boost all that without being um, overbearing. I mean, my whole goal is I don't want a huge structure. I want something that's really helpful and adds value to all the work that has to get done and allows um, everyone to shine. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, you know, so far so good. I think always we have to keep our eye on that because you don't want a central team to ever um, do more than what the business units are doing. It should be really support and guidance. And then um, how are we absolutely all our best? Yeah, beautiful. This is such a great discussion, Deb. I want to move to the lightning round because I, I want to get your reaction to a few things. Uh, what are you driving now? So I'm driving a Bolt EV. And I, I, heard you, I heard you like manual transmission, so you made the adjustment. <laughs> I know. I do miss that. In fact, we just announced at Cadillac that we do have the CT4 uh, and 5 in a manual transmission with a Blackwing engine. So I think I run the gamut. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's probably going to be one because I miss manuals. I, I so remember you know, when I was out in California as a young marketer, zipping around in my convertible with a manual and so much fun. So, And I want to make sure my son learns how to do that, even though he cannot understand why I think that's important. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have a 1963 Alfa Romeo. So I get a lot of work on my, and that's a real manual transmission. Right? <laughs> that's hard work driving that car. Exactly. You know, at least it keeps your muscles in shape and your legs. Um, yeah. So I drive that. I drive a Cadillac um, XT6 too, which is mm -hmm. just wonderful. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, can't wait for the rest of the electric vehicles to come out. What people don't realize is electric vehicles, the ownership and driving experience is so much different and so fun. It's engaged, it's responsive, it's all the things that we think um, that we think about, that, but at a whole different level. So I can't wait for us to introduce what electric vehicles can really do for everyone. So knowing what you know about me, what GM car should I be driving? Oh, well, I think you should be, um, one of your vehicles should be a CT4 Blackwing. Um, and with the manual, and that is uh, just a, a scream to drive. And then I'd love to send a new Bolt over to you because um, driving electric, uh, it's, I mean, I'm addicted. It is so easy, so fun, so fast, so responsive. It has, there's no shift shock actually in it. You just accelerate and you are going from zero to 60 plus in no matter of time with absolutely smooth and quiet. And it's a whole different experience, but it's equally as fun and passionate. Okay. I know the bolt I think looks really cool and I'm, I am looking at it. Oh, good. So well, we can, we can talk about that offline. We'll definitely talk. So I want to hear uh, what's the most honest advice you got from a mentor that others were not giving you. This might've been from Harry or someone else. Um, the honest advice was, um, oh, it was actually, you know, this was, um, the head of, uh, it at Toyota, her name was Barbara and she sat me down and it was the same theme over and over. Like, why are you pushing so hard <laughs> to do everything? And she just said, you have to develop relationships with everyone, not just the women in the company, but the men as well. And start asking for advice and help instead of always trying to pretend that you know everything. Um, and, you know, that was totally contrary to what I thought I should be doing. I thought you only get ahead by knowing everything. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, her advice has stuck with me 
for all this time. And every time, if I get too uh, forceful, when I stop and think about that and go and approach it that way, it's amazing what opens up in terms of possibilities. Most, um, most inspiring person in your life. Hmm. There's so many, um, but it's really right. It's Mary Barra. She has set a path, um, showed what women leadership can be in an industry. Um, you know, she's breaking boundaries, but she is an incredible leader. Um, if you go to any meeting, she will walk around to every person in the meeting and know exactly what they did, what they contributed to the project that we're talking about at the, that day and you have a deep discussion about it. And to me, it's that personal leadership that's so principled but focused on person to person that I think is the leadership we need for today. And she does that in a way that's graceful and elegant and yet very strong. She's a great role model and continues to inspire me. Your category needs a new name. I don't think automotive does it anymore. What should it be? <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're, I, I have not come up with the perfect one, but it is a whole um, difference from automotive to mobility. I mean, it is around that. Um, we're, we're thinking about how we move and get places in a very different way, um, safe, uh, secure, always responsive. So um, I'm going to take that challenge on next. Happy to help. What are what are you reading now or listening to or watching that's having an impact on you? Um, so since the murder of George Floyd, my reading has all been focused on racism um, and what to do. I read White Privilege. I'm reading How to Be an Anti-Racist right now. Mm -hmm. I have a whole stack of books of African-American literature that I'm making my way through because I think that uh, we all need to educate ourselves. And the more I read, the more I see how my upbringing and that I'm part of the problem um, and that I need to fix and adjust perceptions and, and thoughts. And the more I read, the more aware I become. And I think the more I can then help and have an impact. I'll give you the last word, Deb. Any question for me? <laughs> What's the next thing for growth, Jim? What do you think we should all be focusing on? I, I love everything you're talking about, Deb. Simplicity, purpose. Uh, creativity, unlocking your organization, that's what we should always be working on. And I think it starts with a, a purpose that makes a difference to people and to the world. And you're right in the middle of that. And I think you're, GM is a very different place than it was years ago. I think about them differently. My, my perception has changed. I'm thinking about being in the market for a GM car. I haven't been that historically. So I think, um, I think you're on the right track. I think you're setting an example. And I think you and Mary are incredibly inspiring leaders. You're the only all-women team at CMO and CEO in, in the industry and one of the few in the world. So keep going at it. Keep setting the example. Keep unlocking creativity. And, and that draws people to us. You know, I, I'll end with a story. You talk about Will Ferrell a lot and how you brought him into the company. When we started doing the great work in, on Old Spice back at P&G, when that turnaround began, he reached out to us. And he just said, I want to work with you. And I don't really care about the money. You're just doing su such really fun stuff. So we didn't write a script. We just brought him in. And, and we shot about 35 spots in a day. Wow. Totally unscripted. Let him go. Have a lot of fun. He understands the brand, what, what we're trying to do. And we had, we had a great time. 
But, you know, that sets an example in the culture. Let people be who they are. Let, you know, bring talent into your company. Let them work to their full potential. You know, admit you don't have all the ideas. You know, great, a great culture attracts people and attracts, it attracts creative people. And you were doing that at GM. So true. So true. I love that. I'm going to remember that. That's an amazing story, too. I love that. So more to come. Let's go. Deb, wonderful chat. All the best to you. Enjoy your weekend. We're happy it's, it's Friday. And, and I wish you all the best. And let's, let's do stay in touch on this journey you are on. Always so good to talk to you, Jim. It's always inspiring. That was my conversation with Deborah Wall. Three takeaways to think about to apply in your life and business. The first one, the importance of having a best in the world mentality. Deb talked about their aspiration is to be the best marketing company in the world, not just in their sector. I had the same aspiration when I was at P&G. In fact, the first conference call I had with the marketing community at P&G when I was named CMO was our goal needs to be the best marketing company with the best marketers in the world, not benchmarked against our competitive set, but benchmarked against anyone. Second takeaway, the importance of a narrative. Deb talked about the company did not have a narrative to show what amazing things were going on inside the company. So her work has been developing the story of GM and a story that attracts talent, that excites investors, that excites employees. And they're on that journey and they've done a great job. The importance in your company of finding the narrative and telling the story. Third takeaway, the importance of a mentor and a truth teller in your life. Do you have one? Do you have someone who can tell you the truth, be honest with you, help you be better? I've had many mentors and truth tellers along my career. Uh, the one that I remember most vividly was a man named Stuart. He has passed away several years ago. He was so important to myself and many other leaders at P&G of just holding the mirror up and being brutally honest with us about the impact we were having on people. Those are my three takeaways from that most, most, most wonderful discussion with Deb Wall. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.